0: This episode
1: contains archaic language around transgender identities, transphobia and stories of negative medical experiences.
2: This is a logbook entry from June 25th, 1994. A guy rang from Greenwich. She, he is TS, still male becoming female. His GP has laughed at him. The practice staff have no understanding of his situation she, he is terrified of upsetting the consultants at Charing Cross Hospital. She can be removed from the TS program for any minor reason. She has been cut off by her family and has no friends. I told her about other GPs, which was at the start of the call, and she's going to try and change her GP. She said she will call back and let us know. I think she really needs to talk. There are so many other problems as well. A history of abuse by her grandfather,
3: a lack of understanding, fear and loneliness.
1: I'm so fascinated by the change in the use of language throughout the logbooks. Here we have the volunteer writing Guy and also mixing up the pronouns that they're using for the caller too. Not quite sure which one's the right one to use. Its vocabulary in general was so different in the 90s. Of course, it is much, much better now. For example, today at Switchboard, we would probably ask that caller what pronouns they wanted to be referred to by.
0: Yeah, and the thing that stands out for me from this logbook entry is that this person had such a shit experience in the hands of the medical profession. Thankfully, that's improved a lot now, but nowhere near enough, such as the super long waiting lists for gender identity clinics. You're listening to The Logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ plus history and conversations about being queer today. In partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT helpline.
1: In this season, we're reading through the notes made by the volunteers who took calls between 1992 and 2003.
0: I'm Tash Walker. And I'm Adam Smith. Episode 6, Needs Support and Reassurance.
1: We're talking about gender identity and gender expression, as these issues came up on calls from 1992 to 2003.
0: And we're hearing from trans people about their experiences in the 90s, including those who called Switchboard for help and the volunteers who took those calls.
1: Just a word on language and our understanding of gender. Like I mentioned at the top, in this episode, you'll hear logbook entries and stories using words like TS, which stands for transsexual, and TV for transvestite. These are terms that people used about themselves in this time period, before and also after, and and some people still use them today. But over the years, our words and understandings have shifted and evolved with new words coming to explain many things people weren't able to at this time. So we just wanted to put all that in context, especially because of the period we're talking about, 1992 to 2003.
0: So let's get going. In the 90s, especially pre-internet, it was so hard to find information about being trans.
4: Hi, I'm Steph. I'm 51. I live in London. I'm originally from Kent, but I've lived in London for, for most of my adult life. I would say it was gradual, but I would also say I kind of knew from very early on. But, you know, I can even go back to my sort of kind of teenage years and um, pre-teen years actually and thinking i remember really vividly actually um a program being on um the bbc it's panorama i think it was back in the very i think it was probably the early 80s and it was called um it was, you know, rather clumsily of the day called sex change and it was about this guy that was changing into a woman and I remember being trailed on the news as a, as a child and being very interested in this and not knowing really anything about that. And, you know, growing up in a small town, again, I've got no vocabulary for this or any idea of who I could possibly talk to because it just felt so removed from the world that I knew. And so I think that was probably the first time I thought, oh, something can be done. And I remember really vividly, actually, this is how little resource there was, actually. It always makes, makes me laugh almost to think about this now. Um, the only word I could find that sort of resonated was transvestite. And I could only find that word in a dictionary. <laughs> so, literally, the nearest I could get to information was a dictionary with a word in it, which had a brief description underneath it. And I remember... um I mean, what child actually does this without any intent? Going through the dictionary and miraculously finding this word and trying to engage my mum in a conversation about it. And I just think she wasn't interested. I don't think she saw anything particularly in it in what I was saying or anything like that. But I I often think back then, I think, wow, you know, I was really trying to have a conversation then with no way of knowing how to have that conversation.
0: This is a logbook entry from November 12th, 1998. I've just taken a call from a TS, Louise, who is living at home with parents in what seems to be an awful situation. Wants to find somewhere else to live in or stay tonight. Has rung back several times, but mother keeps cutting off the call. Has a speech impediment and will probably ring back again. Louise's parents are stopping her from wearing women's clothes and living as a woman, which her GP has told her to do for 12 to 18 months. Parents are very abusive and not accepting of Louise's choice. are screening calls for her.
5: And if you're in a not safe environment in your home, because they might think you're queer or strange or my kids, that didn't come from my side of the family, are you then putting yourself in an unsafe position? These are all the things we had to think about back then. And we had so little knowledge. There wasn't really books about it. There was no internet. There was no information. There was very little knowledge. Hi, my name is Diana James, and I am 62 years old. I was a volunteer at Switchboard from about 88 to 94. So it was incredibly hard, and the terminology was so damning. Even within our own community, it was damning. Especially, you know, you get a, a, a trans man phone up, And they could get really negative information because it wasn't only, oh, no, you're just a butch dyke. Don't worry about it. You know, lots of butch dykes have these feelings. But their feelings, being a butch dyke is one thing. Being a trans man is something completely different. And we know the two are separate. One might go through one to get to the other because of lack of understanding, not knowing where they're going, or fear of who they might be and not knowing if they want to go there. So that can be like a through station for it, but they're completely different entities. One is a woman who presents in a certain way, and one is a man, which is a completely different aspect. That's to do with gender, not to do with sexuality. And they can get mixed, and back then they did.
2: Yeah, so I called Switchboard, I think it was in about 1997, and I would have been about 14 years old. So hi, my name's Finn, Finn Greg or Finn the Human, as my young people know me. I'm 37 years old. I'm a trans person, first and foremost. So more identified as a transmasculine person, less so as a man these days. Yeah, I work in a trans organisation, Gendered Intelligence, and have worked in the LGBT sector for around 15 years. How it felt to be me at 14. So I grew up in East London, in Hackney, and uh, I was living in Dalston at the time, but I was going to school in Parliament Hill because I got bullied in a school that I went to in Hackney at the time for being a girl in trousers, um, for being a queer, basically, probably, Um, and I was having quite a hard time at that school, and my mum moved me. So I started the school that I was at when I was, by the time I called Twitchboard, I started the school parliament hill when i was 12 in year eight i was very arty i did a lot of art i did care about school that lasted only about another year (laughs) until that dropped off because i realized that they didn't really care about me especially my queer identity um so before before then i don't know like i was starting to struggle with my gender identity so I knew there was something going on with my sexuality and I knew there was something going on with my gender I knew there was something going on with my gender identity since I was very very little and um, probably three or four or five years old um and so growing up under 10 I thought I was a boy and everyone else didn't really realize and that that would also that would sort of come to fruition a bit later in my life and that people would also realize um but didn't know how (laughs) that would happen. Um, And then when I was about 11, 12, I started to think, well, I know I'm interested in, in girls. And I think there's this word or this identity called lesbian, so That must be me, but I struggled with it. So there wasn't any um, positive role modeling of, of lesbian identities probably still isn't enough. Um, But I I was really struggling with that. So I think probably come about the age of 12, that's when my real disconnection with my body and with my, self-worth and stuff like that started to really kick in.
6: We actually got a lot of calls from, and I'm going to use the language I would have used at the time. We got a lot of calls from men who said that they were transvestite. Um, Many of them married and they just wanted somewhere to go in peace and quiet to be able to cross-dress. I remember selling my entire um straight girl wardrobe, actually, at one point to to somebody who said he was a transvestite um but actually he was also a gay man um and I don't know where he would have sat in today's spectrum or definitions, um but we used different language and we had different explanations in those days, so a lot of straight transvestites, and we would refer a lot of people to something called the Beaumont society, which was uh, around and there were a few small um, TV stroke TS groups we would call them because there obviously was um, a very permeable line between the two groups quite often um, and people who were actually transgender were much fewer and far between um, but then I think a lot of the people that we talked to probably were transgender and didn't have the vocabulary um, or the or sometimes the imagination to describe where they were heading.
7: I'm Jay Stewart. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm from Birmingham. When I graduated from a fine art degree, that was my black hole moment, to be completely honest with you. So that would have been 1997. Um, You know, you come out of doing a fine art degree and you've got no job prospects and you don't know what career you're going to pursue. And you know, you're a kind of queer person, and you've probably had your heart broken a a couple of times, and uh, and maybe your gender identity, or at least my emerging sense of self, wasn't necessarily being articulated, um, not finding a way to articulate that. So I would describe that period is quite dark, probably. So, yeah, I suppose even though there were kind of lesbian bars, kind of gay bars, um, there wasn't enough exposure to a trans experience at that, at that point in my life. It wasn't really till the early
5: 2000s that, that that kind of happened for me, I think. This is a logbook entry from January the 20th, 1996. Regarding the entry on transgender issues from January the 19th, yes, there are support groups for transgender people, both male to female and female to male. Firstly, the Gender Dysphoria Trust listed in our TVTS file and also the Beaumont Trust. Both have helpline numbers. Also, some good books are Gender Outlaw by Kate Bornstein, Male to Female TS, What Took You So Long? A Girl's Journey to Manhood by Ray Thompson, and the Pink Paper mentions a new book from Scarlet Press this week called
8: Lesbians Talk Transgender Issues.
0: This logbook entry is a classic example of Switchboard giving resources and referrals, trying hard to support people and meet them where they are.
1: It's all about listening to the caller, right? Giving them space to explore what what they need to so many people at Switchboard contact us to talk things through, not always to look for a definitive answer. So it's really helpful to give people referrals or ask them questions too. And as we receive more and more of these types of calls, Switchboard started to look at its own understanding of gender identity, language and push to grow its awareness like in this logbook entry that we found, Adam.
0: Yeah, this is a logbook entry that is entitled AGM Morning Workshops. It's from September 1997, and it's about a sequence of workshops that are going to take place at the University of London Union for Switchboard volunteers. And top of the agenda, number one, TVTS, why they're just not the same. And the description says, this workshop will allow volunteers to discuss how they feel about the increasing amount of TVTS calls we receive at Switchboard Why do we get these calls? How do the callers feel about calling us? Three trainers experienced in this field will facilitate this interactive and frank discussion on an increasingly relevant phone topic.
8: This is a logbook entry from 17th of April 1998. Male caller, Asian transsexual undertaking gender realignment programme in London. Selling sex and in relationship with his, her pimp who is totally controlling their life. Suffering physical abuse from boyfriend when he gets drunk. Caller feeling very isolated and unaware of what to do. Totally losing his confidence and out of control of his life. Gender realignment is also most important. Caller referred by Samaritan who he considered unsympathetic. Asked if he could call again for support. I assured him he could call and talk anytime.
9: Perhaps the indication is the TVTS file going. I would hazard a guess about 9495. For years there was the transvestite transsexual file in switchboard. It went and it was rewritten and, and things, things changed and it went because of the people who were working with us and our volunteers it went because our understanding changed You know, we still talk to people with a huge range of trans experience and at that point we only had the sexualised transvestite experience and the transsexual experience the bits in between weren't there. And our learning was filling those spaces by people coming to work with us, joining us, and and pointing out where we were wrong. I don't remember calls deliberately. When callers call back, and and because I do a fairly regular shift, callers often get me again. They can choose not to talk to me, That's, that's why they hang up, or they get me again. The callers I remember are the traumatic ones. They've generally been things I've like, like talked to, to Switchboard internal support about because occasionally there are there are those traumatic callers. Working with with trans people has always been part of life in Switchboard. So, same as, although we we had issues, I think a little in in this period just about, um, with accepting bisexual volunteers. Um, we've always had bisexual people in Switchboard. If you look at behaviour, um, identity behaviour are not the same. And and we and, you know that, that that has always been the case. Going forward, with talking to trans folk has always been what Switchboard has done. At this point, the referrals were different because there were so, so fewer of them. The Beaumont Society was there and it still is. The rest were often places to dress up and the quite sexualised. Part of the spectrum that is very difficult to get people to talk about in terms of how we train people. But it comes often a lot on the phones. And one of the ways of dealing with sexually aroused callers, talking about wearing clothes, which is something that happens quite a lot and happened quite a lot then, is to remind them that if they're wearing their mum's clothes, they might stretch them and be sure
5: to wash them before they put them back. They were, there was a confusion, especially for a lot of young male to female around the drag going on at the time. They would be accused of being transvestites who would dress in the opposite sex's clothing for sexual pleasure or for relaxation, but not because that's who they were, and being drag artists. So there was a lot of confusion around that time around that as well, you know, around what am I, who am I? But we would get the same as well from female to male. There was like a lot of misunderstanding around that. There was a lot of, well, transgender is only one way. It's only male to female. You don't get the other. You're just a very butch dyke. You're not not a trans man. So we had to deal with a lot of that. A lot of that was around self-education. And me then going back as the first... Uh, openly at that time, transgender volunteer that Switchboard had at that time. A lot of the calls and information and that came over to me as a member of the training group at that time as well. That was a part of what I did too. Brought that into our, We brought that into our training. The more the calls increased, the more we brought that into the training and the more involved in that I got.
2: This is a logbook entry from December the 12th,
3: 1999. Transvestite info. A guy rang who said charity shops can be very helpful regarding clothes if you ring in advance and ask if you can come in for half an hour after the shop officially closes.
2: Fourteen was just the moment before that. You know, they say it gets worse before it gets better. So I think it was probably quite a tough year. And that's when the play, this play came into my secondary school called Free Willy, hilariously. And it was a piece of Forum Theatre and there was some actors who were friends. They were sort of being teenagers in the play. And um, one of the characters was a gay boy and it was about him coming out to his two friends. And I don't remember loads more about it other than, holy shit, this is about me <laughs> in some way, shape or form. Excuse my swear words. But this is some kind of um telling of my experience. And when we came into the hall to see the play, I don't know if I knew what it was going to be about, but there was little... um flyers on the chair Uh, each chair had about two or three postcards or flyers just left on the chair and I remember like eyeing up as I was walking down the aisle to sit in my seat what those were and I realized that they were about sort of LGBT support at the time so spent the entire duration of the play trying to shuffle the um shuffle the flyers into my back pocket without anybody else noticing that I was trying to take this information away with me you know Somehow, as kids do, I managed to get these support flyers into my pocket during the play. And that was where, yeah, I was able to sort of start to know that it, that someone could see me or see my experience and that there was help somewhere to be found and support to, to navigate what I was thinking and feeling. Um, so seeing that play uh, was really, really a turning point for me. Yeah, so one of the flyers that was on that chair was a a, a, a a lesbian and gay switchboard flyer at the time. So the switchboard flyer at the time in the the mid-90s. And I was like, okay, so it's got a piece of text on it that must have said, phone us if you think this is how you're feeling and we'll be able to support you or something. I don't know what it said, but I was like, okay, so when am I going to do that? Like, considering there was no mobile phone, (laughs) so I didn't have a mobile until I was 18. We had those phones in my house that were in my family home that were cordless, you know, those old school house phones that were cordless. So I remember, like, we used to, me and my sister could use those if we wanted to phone friends or whatever. So I remember thinking, okay, well, I'll do it a bit later in the evening. So there's less chance of my mum and dad coming upstairs or something. I don't even know if it was that night. It was probably, it took me a few days probably, but I got the phone Went upstairs, made sure it was charged. And then I sat the furthest away point from my bedroom door under my desk, as I possibly could be. Sat under the desk and um, dialed the number. And I've got this memory of my hands sweating so much because I was so nervous. And the phone kept slipping out of my hand. (laughs) So it's really like shiny old phone and I remember it just like slipping down and I had to change hands and dry my hand off and then change hands and dry my hand off. There was a, a kind of deeper voice I don't know if it's a guy's voice on the phone and, and just being really gentle with me and saying, you know, um, well done for calling and we don't have to talk if you don't want to and you can take your time. And it definitely felt like the longest period of my life of of not knowing what to say. And then eventually, I think he said something like, um, would it be easier if I asked you questions uh, or said some things that might be how you're feeling and then you can say yes or no and you don't have to say too much? And I was like, yes. <laughs> yes, please. Saying it myself will be really hard. I've not said it out loud before. That would be great. So I just it did all that in my head. The word that came out of my mouth was yes. And um, and then he, I think he sort of asked... Um, I don't really remember. I just remember it feeling easier after that. I think he was asking like, you know, is it that you feel like maybe you are attracted to other girls or is there someone that you like at the moment who might be a girl and at the time I was a girl identifying as a girl, whatever. And so it's like, yeah. I think at one point he did say, is there anyone else you can tell? Is there a friend you've got that would understand or can you talk to your parents And at the time although they've been brilliant ever since like I didn't really feel like I could talk to them at the time and then so I said yeah I think there's probably one friend that I could share it with and she recalls that I told I came out when I was 14 so it must have been shortly after or within the same year roughly that I came out to her and I think a couple of other people in my year group
7: But I'm just wondering about the barriers that maybe people who don't even know how to reach out for help, it's a barrier that's probably quite internalised. But I just think as a kind of working class person from Birmingham, it would never have occurred to me to do that. And what a shame. I got referred to a local mental health centre. And there was a lesbian who was the manager of that centre in South London. And I was kind of saying, look, I don't know about my gender. I don't know what, who I am. I'm really struggling. And they just didn't really know what to do with me. And, and I think the lesbian manager person was saying, well, I'll meet this person. So I met with her and she was she was a butch dyke. You know, she was like really representing her down there in Southeast East London and and. She was just really kind to me and really, although it was a mental health provider that I'd gone to, she was kind of approaching it more from an LGBT perspective, I think. And she put me in touch with the Metro, which was also a a charity down in South East London. And I went there and I thought I was going to access some kind of mental health services there. But I guess I was kind of quite articulate and kind of becoming articulate about my identity, about queerness and they were like, Do you want to join our board? <laughs> so I actually ended up becoming a board of trustee. Oh. And um uh, <laughs> and it kind of went from there. And then I, I i was referred to not referred to but kind of found out about an organisation called FTM London, which was a trans male, trans masculine kind of support group. And that was the that was the you've got to see it to be at the moment, you know, walking into a room um and there was about 40 40 other people around me um looking really diverse actually in terms of their gender uh expression in terms of their masculinities and I just thought actually I can be me you know I can be the man that I feel myself to be not a version of what a man is out there like because I kind of was looking around me and I'm like I'm not that impressed with the men that I see on the streets these days you know it's like is that what I'm supposed to be if I feel like a man so it was really nice actually to see trans masculinity kind of there in front of me and 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 that that so to answer your question um that was what pulled me out of the the sort of the the darkness um to a large degree it was it was a big kind of moment
1: And just thinking back to Finn, talking about finding and calling Switchboard, well, phoning what was called London Lesbian and Gay Switchboard at that time, a name clearly omitting bisexual, trans and others. But if someone called and wanted to talk about gender identity, then Switchboard supported them as best they could at that time. Which also makes me think about Jay's point around barriers to reaching out for help, which I don't think is spoken about nearly enough. In his example, being working class, feeling like you should be strong enough to not need or even reach out for help. It being a failing to do so.
0: Yeah, and thinking about barriers to calling, one barrier would be because it was called lesbian and gay, (laughs) Switchboard. You know, it was clear in the 90s, as you can see in these logbook entries, that Switchboard supported people with questions on sexuality and gender identity. But it wasn't until 2014 that Switchboard rebranded to become Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. You know, any volunteer-led organisation always has such a slow timeline (laughs) of change.
1: Definitely, Throughout this time period, it's clear that Switchboard is on a journey of how best to support people trying to understand their gender identity. And as was often the case with the calls to Switchboard, the medical profession was also on the same journey. And just like in the early 80s with HIV and AIDS, it's often through the lack of support from the medical profession that people end up reaching out to Switchboard, as you can hear in this next logbook entry.
4: This is a logbook entry from January 19th, 1996. 19-year-old woman from Cardiff who has just had an operation to turn her into a woman after living as a man for 18 years with both sets of genitals,
0: working out his sexuality because she's still attracted to women.
4: I am angered that she was turned into a female because that was the easiest medical option. That she had all the female internals was only just realized. So trying to come to terms with dramatic changes. But are there any support orgs for such a situation? Not much gender awareness by the medical world.
3: This is a logbook entry from September 3rd, 1994. Amanda phoned again. Things seem to have gone from bad to worse. Charing Cross will not go ahead with treatment because of her depression and anger. Also, she has had her disabled allowance stopped. She had taken four of her hormone tablets, which were making her feel sick and achy. She would not let me phone for an ambulance for her. Long periods of silence during the call with her crying on the other end of the phone and making me feel completely unable to help and useless. Another volunteer writes, You are not useless. You're fab. Love.
0: This is a logbook entry from 18th of September, 2001. Just spent one hour on the phone to Alex, who's in his 30s. He suffers from a condition called Klinefelter's, which is a form of gender disorder. Means that he develops breasts at puberty, and has a female build. He's had his breast removed a long time ago, and is due to have another operation soon on his hips. Anyway, he's had a lot of crap to put up with over the years, and not a lot of support from his family. There's very little information out there on Kleinfelters, either, and he would desperately like to meet others like him. He may call back sometime. If he does, be nice. He's a lovely guy.
3: The TV calls, uh, to use the terminology of the time, um, were always interesting because it felt like you could always guarantee that at some point in the call, the caller would steer the topic into a discussion of what they were wearing um and so you became aware that actually for many people this was a lifeline to be able to talk about something which was very personal to them um for which they had no other outlet um i mean that wasn't the purpose of switchboard we weren't there to you know sort of um you know necessarily listen or indulge with that. But I did find if, you know, if you let people say, you know, a little bit about that and then bring the topic back on to, was, was that, were there any of the questions you had, any, you know, support, any questions about safer sex, et cetera, you could kind of steer away from that. Um, but it did feel as though, you know, that was an important reason for that person to be calling, even if it wasn't necessarily what we might have called a legitimate support call. The calls that were far more interesting to me, though, were the calls from people where there was an issue around how they were, you know, their, their trans status or, you know, where they, they wanted to make a, a gender change. Um, and I at first had, you know, I just hadn't really had any experience of that. But the, the, the number of calls that came through and the, um, my desire to answer those and support as, as best as I can prompted me to go off and read a whole load uh, of information uh, about trans issues. And, you know, I I guess I kind of became a a very early advocate of of trans issues as a result of being at Switchboard. I just understood, um, you know, the issues that people were experiencing from the the number of calls that came through. Um, And you know, that, that prompted me to be, want to be trans-inclusive in, you know, the work I've done um, since then. So, you know, the, the LGBT services I've been involved in, Antidote, the LGBT Drug and Alcohol Service, which I set up in 2002, was essentially, you know, born from an, a lesbian, gay, and bisexual alcohol counselling project. And so it was really important for me to make that service trans-inclusive.
1: What Monty's talking about there is running London Friend, which is an LGBT plus mental health and well-being charity based in London. I love hearing from so many past volunteers about their time at Switchboard.
0: Yeah, and how the calls they've taken have influenced their future work and ways of supporting LGBTQI plus people.
4: This is a logbook entry from January 4th, 2001. Took a call from Carly, a TS on a psychic ward, wanting information on taking legal advice from us on mental health illness issues and taking the hospital to court. I advise that this needs specialist advice. Carly was writing everything down for court action. She will ring again. Another volunteer adds, advise her to call Mind Info Line on database regarding mental health tribunals. Yeah, the 90s were. They were a confusing place for me, to be honest. Not unlike the 80s in many respects. Um, but I think they were at a time where I was still really trying to work out where I fitted in the world and who I was. And, and that's not like some sort of identity crisis, like who am I? But actually, you know, how do I kind of plug into this world and be me comfortably? And I think the 90s... was was a lot of that, trying to work out a way of solving that. Late 90s was probably the time where I was really starting to try and explore this in a more meaningful way. Um, I reached out for help because I needed to understand, to some extent, what my rights were. Um, There were a lot of things going on that I probably won't go into, but I needed to understand you know, my sort of legal position on some things because I felt like I was, you know, there was a lot that could be taken from me that and I'm not talking about financial things here, I'm talking about things way more important. And so I needed that, but I also needed confidence about, you know, that I had a right to be in the workplace the way I was and things like that as well.
8: This is a logbook entry from the fourteenth of March nineteen ninety four. Please could we have a list in London Entertainment of places recommended for TV slash TS men? I can't think of anywhere else to get this information at Switchboard, and I do think it's important for us to be able to tell callers ourselves rather than having to refer them to another helpline. Another volunteer writes underneath The Way Out Bar, behind Selfridges, every Saturday night.
0: Time and time again in this podcast and on Calls to Switchboard, we see the importance of spaces and places where you can meet people like you, whether it's to do with your sexuality or another part of who you are or your expression or your gender identity.
1: Yeah. And whether it's online or in person, it's about creating welcoming environments that are accessible.
0: Yeah. And this is something that the community has long tried to do. And it's something that almost it's something that we have to keep pushing for all the time.
1: Yeah, totally. I think that we always see this historically through the logbooks, and we'll see it in, in our conversations that we have today. And we'll see it in the future because it's something really that we'll never fully be able to achieve because all the parameters are constantly changing as our understanding is constantly changing around what accessibility means, around what welcoming means. It's something that we should always continually strive for.
0: And we're going to be looking more at accessibility in this time period in the next episode.
2: Yeah, I think it was a turning point calling calling Switchboard and being validated in that moment that I wasn't alone and that there was lots and lots of other people who identified as lesbian and gay. And um, at the time, that was the language that was useful to me or being used by the call handler. Um, and so once I told a couple of friends after having that call and being sort of given some confidence as well, really, permission and confidence to, to come out... Um, I told a few friends and then from about 15 and a half I was quite formidable. <laughs> I remember I was in um I was I was like okay that's me now I'm like a gay activist <laughs> it's like super kick super passionate we got told we we got we were doing hamlet uh, this is another good story i remember from my year 10 which is i must have been 15 we were doing hamlet and i was so bored out of my brains i was like this is ridiculous i'm really bored but i'd heard about or read about in the newspapers section 28 and i was outraged and angry and hurt and upset and pissed off and all the all the feelings and so I decided that I was going to use my English class instead of writing Hamlet I was going to write a a a newspaper pamphlet style thing um talking about why we should abolish section 28. So I started um drawing like a kind of classic looking front cover of a newspaper in my English class and writing abolish section 28 at the top and drew a little picture in the little bit where you put a picture and then front page of a newspaper and wrote some stuff down the side and my English teacher came over to me and she was like um what are you doing <laughs> and I was like oh miss have you heard about this thing like section 28 da, 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 it's, it's I've got to get you know it's terrible we've got to think about it she goes can I um can I talk to you outside the classroom, please? Right. So obviously looking back at it, it's like she wasn't allowed to promote or she thought she wasn't allowed to promote homosexuality. And there's this kid like writing this newspaper about abolishing section 28. It was so multi-layered. It was brilliant. And so anyway, we went outside the classroom and she said, okay, um, so you can't do that in school. (laughs) That's just like, okay. I was like, oh yeah, because of it, I can't do it because of it. Right. And she's like, yeah. Right. And she was, I could tell she was like on board and she could see through the fact that I was like getting it. And she was like, right. So what I could do is if you're really keen to like write some stuff is you could bring it into school uh, if you've done it at home and I could have a look at it outside of my, you know, school teaching hours and I could give you feedback on it and we can improve it. So I could, I understood in that moment, you know, that she was supportive, but she couldn't be. And therefore, instead of being like taking her up on her offer and going back and doing my English assignment, Hamlet, I was like, screw this. She understands and she's not inhuman enough to know that this is what's going on. I need This is more more motivation, more fuel for me to go and do this project. So I was like, thanks, miss. And basically from that day on, I was like, school ain't the place for me. It's not the place where I'm going to get to do me or what I care about or change the world in the way I want to change it. And I just, you know, made it quite a... I remember this quite conscious decision at the age of nearly 16 to say I'm going to go and find the places where I can be more useful (laughs) than wasting my time doing their assignments in school. So I skimmed through my GCSEs because obviously by that point I'd done enough and whatever and I got my GCSEs. But as soon as I hit 16, going to sixth form and seeing more of the hypocrisy of come and do the things we want you to do but don't do you. Um, And Section 28 was still in place and all this other stuff. And I was well-fueled by then to be changing the world. So I was like, see ya.
8: This is a logbook entry from the 26th of January, 1996. RE, Transgender Caller, 24th of January. I took a call from this woman on the 19th of January and took her quite seriously, although her voice is disconcertingly male. I spent an hour with her, and my understanding from her was that she was comfortable with her new female self, even though it was a rapid and unexpected transformation. And her issue was sexuality. She's still attracted to women, so we discussed her being a lesbian and lesbian sex. The story she told the other volunteer matches the story I heard. I feel this caller needs support and reassurance. I was angered that her sex change sounded more like the convenience of doctors than a well-thought-out decision she was supported to make in her best interests. Ari, the constructive comments regarding transgender issues. I asked her about her desire to meet other transsexuals or find support in this way, but she was not interested. This is an unusual case, so I think she needs respect and support in coming to terms with her new sexuality.
2: And then when I was about 19, 20, maybe it came back into my life and someone talked about drag kings and women dressing up as men. And I was like, well, that's normal for me. That's not a dress up weekend one-off thing. That's me. And I went to a workshop in Scotland and when I was at Glasgow Art School and I found out that you could do drag king stuff. And then the guy that was doing, sorry, I'm rambling on, the guy that was doing um, the makeup for the... Weekend course it was run by this lesbian drag king artist called Diane tor and then her, she'd got this guy, this trans guy, to do the facial makeup for the people doing the, the course. There was about twelve of us, or ten of us, and I remember him saying to me at the end of the weekend, he said um, everyone was saying goodbye and giving each other big hugs, and I was a bit anxious and a bit like mask and a bit like standoffish, and then he was like just shook my hand instead of hugging me, and he said, try this uh, website. It's called FTMNetwork.org or something, and I went okay. And I don't know; I didn't even know what FTM stood for. Anyway, off I went into my art school library at the time, and waited four hours for the computer to turn on, and another two for the internet to turn on, and then typed in the website that I remembered, it was emblazoned into my mind, and then the the homepage came up, and I was like Uh uh-huh okay so that's my life story (laughs) so when i was 19 i discovered that trans guys could exist and then that embarked a a different journey yeah so now i'm 37 which happened a lot quicker than you expected to right uh one minute i was like 25 and then i was 37 so i think since i transitioned to what i wanted to be male at the time uh or a man um i don't think i ever wanted to aspire to like full biological maleness that was never on my cards i didn't want to have certain types of surgery any other types and hormones and stuff but between about the age of 21 socially and about 23 surgically um and then that really worked for a really long time for me that fitted really well uh in my 20s and I was really enjoying it and then I started to I got into my th- early 30s and I started to think about like a slightly more philosophical health perspective bodily perspective of what I needed testosterone for or did I need it I was also curious about what my body might feel like again without it not taking away my trans identity or necessarily my trans mask identity and I still often use the pronoun he but not all the time.
1: Finn's story really resonates because the older we get, the more, I think, we realise that gender identity and sexuality are an ever-changing experience.
0: Yeah, and I love the way that Finn talks about that. They've got such a great model of reflection and openness.
1: Yeah, and Finn's talking about when they were 25. It's making me think about when I was 25, and that was when I first walked into Switchboard and, you know, how much my life has changed since then and how much Switchboards has too. We're still seeing an increase in calls about gender identity and still supporting people making those calls. So I went to Switchboard to speak to the general manager of the charity today.
0: Whose voice you might recognise from earlier in this episode.
4: I'm Steph Fuller and I'm the general manager at Switchboard. Being the general manager at Switchboard today is, is incredible to me. Um, not least because I know calls that come into Switchboard today that very easily could have been calls made by me to Switchboard in the 90s. And, you know, I feel a tremendous privilege and responsibility to make sure that, you know, we're there to help answer those calls. So, you know, what, what we're seeing at Switchboard now is... An an increase in calls, and you know that's perhaps not a shock because there's a pandemic going on, and that's pretty unusual for all of us. But what we're seeing within that is, you know, a a significant increase in calls from trans and uh, people with uh, non-binary identities reaching out to switchboard for conversations across, you know, telephone and email and instant messenger, and that really is it's increasing at quite a rate. And I think it's been increasing for quite a while, to tell you the truth. But, you know, we were looking at our 2020 stats quite recently, and 26% of our callers described their identity as being different to that assigned at birth. And when you put that into the context of the fact that we're an organisation that took over 18,000 conversations last year, that's a significant number of people. And that's just the ones we definitely communicated with. There are probably others that maybe put the phone down before they got through because it just felt like they couldn't. So we're seeing an awful lot of those conversations and it's also reflecting through um, our instant messaging, which is, you know, increasing. And, you know, we've got a fairly good understanding that that actually is because trans and non-binary people actually prefer to use instant messaging because it removes the chances of being misgendered, which, you know, I know from personal experience is not nice. Um, So if you can find a way of negating that, and and getting the help you need, then it's, it's a good platform. But we're seeing a big increase. Yeah, so trans and non-binary people are, are reaching out to Switchboard for a variety of reasons, Um, it, it, depending on pe- perhaps where they are in their lives. You know, some people are just exploring their identity. Some people have almost been trying to run away from their identity and have kind of reached their, their day of reckoning, if you like. And they're, they're really trying to find routes forward now about how they can live their lives authentically. And, you know, what sort of support there might be for them. But in many cases, it's a very difficult conversation to have in the first place. And so Switchboard is very often the first place they have that conversation. Because being able to verbalise how you feel is really, really important. And when you know you can't do that maybe to your family or your friends, then having a platform like Switchboard where you can, and you know that person on the end of the phone is going to be there for you, and they'll hear you out for essentially as long as you need is really really important and that's a big step saying out loud that you are something for the first time is really key and we're we we're definitely enabling people to do that and then to start to think about you know how they're going to navigate the next phase of their life or perhaps just give them resources that will enable them to find some groups that will be useful for them or maybe some advice um, from kind of um healthcare advice as well being general manager of switchboard for me is this isn't i mean you can probably tell from the smile on my face it is the job of my life i promise you it absolutely is it's it's not it's not a job this is like this is beyond a vocation it's it's so important so when we look at our stats from 2020 one of the things that really jumps out to me is that at its height um people that uh would express their gender as being different to that assigned at birth was 42% of our calls, which is an incredible figure. And I think that speaks to a, the pandemic and also the climate more broadly uh, in the world around um, the, the you know, I'm not, I'm not wishing to get particularly political about this, but actually, you know, trans people and non-binary people are having their identities debated in public, almost in their absence, And, you know, we see that in our calls, you know, we see the kind of pressure that that brings on people manifest itself in phone calls to switchboard. You know, those calls don't come to us unless somebody's feeling it, picks up a phone and makes that call. And unfortunately, you know, with all these kind of conversations that are going on, and, and and I'm very aware that a lot of stuff on social media is very extreme in both directions, if you like. But equally, there are casualties to this. And very often they're in the form of the phone calls that come to Switchboard. So for me, it's really important that we're there and able to take those calls. But to see 42% of the calls at its height in 2020 20, being from people that would describe their gender as being different to that assigned at birth is pretty startling, I have to say. <laughs>
1: Such a huge shift in understanding and awareness of gender identity in the 90s.
0: Yeah, and we saw lots more calls to switchboard in the logbooks than in previous years about the intersections of living with a disability and questions around sexuality and gender identity.
1: So our next episode is on disability. Calls to switchboard are confidential. So to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed caller's details.
0: The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Darvey, Tash Walker and Adam Smith in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline and supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund.
1: If you think other people would like The Logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org Or join the conversation on social media with the hashtag TheLogBooks.
0: Our music is by Tom Foskett-Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to... Steph Dickers and the team at the Bishopsgate Institute, the folks at ACAST, Content is Queen, David Pye, the staff and volunteers at Switchboard and everyone who shared their stories with us.
1: Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630, email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt, where you can also donate money or time to help.